This was the sound of a changing China in the late 80s. A piece of red cloth by Tui Jian was an anthem for thousands of protesting students and workers. In the spring of 1989, Tui Jian performed it live at the demonstrators' unofficial headquarters, Tiananmen Square in Beijing. Hundreds of thousands of people are chanting in chorus, long live democracy, calling for the movement to continue to the end. There's cheering and clapping. What an extraordinary atmosphere. These people are on the crest of a wave. James Miles was there reporting for the BBC. These days, he's a colleague of mine at The Economist. In 1989, it did seem, or would have seemed from the point of view of leaders in Zhongnanhai, the party compound, that the party's survival was at stake. Some genie had been let out of the bottle that without some massive show of force uh, would be very hard indeed to put back in again. The party itself was divided between those who wanted to take a hard line and those more supportive of the students. And if any party leaders publicly sided with the students against the party, that could bring it down entirely. So China's leader, Deng Xiaoping, made a decision he put the most prominent official who was sympathetic to the students under house arrest and sent in the army. The sound of rapid gunfire. There are hundreds of people running past me here. Troops have just opened fire. We've just heard sounds of automatic rifle shots just uh, about 100 yards from where I'm standing. In the early hours of June 4, 1989, the Chinese military cleared Tiananmen Square and the surrounding streets. They killed hundreds, if not thousands. This was the People's Army. It hadn't been used to suppress protesters in anybody's living memory. And people were just brimming with fury, anger, terror. When it was daylight, um, I went out and, you know, it was... It was chaos, um, um, still dead bodies on Chang'an Boulevard, smoke rising from fires that had been lit by protesters. You know, the, the, the tarmac of, of, of Chang'an Boulevard kind of churned up almost by, by the treads of tanks all, all the way along. Um, it, it was such a contrast um, with the mood and atmosphere of the weeks leading up to this, one of well, on the part of many people in Beijing, a sort of sense of triumph that authoritarianism, nastiness was in retreat and now it was back full strength. I'm Su Lin Wong. From The Economist, this is The Prince, a podcast about China's leader, Xi Jinping. Episode 4, Man Enough. In 2012, when Xi Jinping came to power, the party was in crisis. It faced corruption, fiefdoms vying for power, and a growing wave of protests across the country. But Xi had seen the party brought to the brink before. 
In the lead-up to the massacre around Tiananmen Square in 1989, the world may have been gripped by images of idealistic students and workers on the streets. But the real threat to China's rulers did not come from a grassroots revolt. It came from infighting at the highest level of the Communist Party. The bloodshed on June 4th settled the debate. The hardliners had won. Xi Jinping was almost 2,000 kilometres away in a remote part of southern China. But in 1989, protests broke out across the country, not just in Beijing. There were demonstrations in Ningde, where Xi was party boss, in Xiamen, where he'd served in the city government, and in the provincial capital of Fuzhou, where he'd later become governor. What did this pivotal moment look like from there? And how would Xi make sure it didn't happen again, once he took power? One of the producers working with me on this podcast, Sam Colbert, spoke to a student who protested in Fuzhou in 1989. He lives abroad now, and he didn't want us to identify him or use his voice, and that was to protect his family back home in China. But he said that in Fuzhou, most of the students there were protesting, and there were thousands of them. And they would gather in the central square outside the provincial headquarters. And he said the protests weren't about democracy for them, or, or at least not for him. He says he didn't really even have a concept of what a liberal democracy could be until he left China. He just felt at the time that China was corrupt and that if you were an honest person like he was, who didn't have political connections, you would have a hard time in that economy. And so that's why he was protesting. How did local authorities treat protesters there in Fuzhou? He said the police there were relatively nice to them and maybe even sympathetic to the students' cause. His sense was that local leaders were waiting to see which way the wind would blow in Beijing. It was clear to everyone there, he said, that the top of the party was split over what to do about these protesters. And that very public political division felt like an opportunity, and so it emboldened people in the streets. What does he remember about June 4th? He said everything was different that day in Fuzhou. People had heard about the massacre at Tiananmen Square in Beijing early that morning. And he went out to the central square, and there was nowhere near the number of students as there had been before. He said people were scared that what had happened in Beijing could happen to them in Fuzhou. And I asked him, why weren't you scared? And he said, well, to that point, I hadn't been violent. I hadn't destroyed any monuments. And so I went out that day because I didn't think I'd done anything wrong. And so that day in Fuzhou, police didn't open fire. They just had these video cameras, and they closed in on the students and filmed them so that these few remaining protesters could be identified later on. So some provincial leaders were watching rival factions battle in Beijing and awaiting the outcome. But even before the carnage in the capital, Xi stopped a convoy of students from entering Ningde to join the protests there, according to an official party account. As a loyal party man, he knew what he needed to do. At the height of the protests, he gave a revealing speech. Joseph Turrigian, the historian of the Xi family, says it's one of Xi Jinping's most interesting. He talks about how people like to talk about democracy, but actually 
If you have too much democracy, that's just a chance for some people to do whatever they want and infringe upon the rights of others. Xi Jinping worried that more freedom meant more chaos. And he knew a lot about chaos. He talked about the Cultural Revolution as an era when people could go to somebody else's house and drag them up and ransack their home. Remember, Xi's family home had been torn apart by Red Guards. Xi said in that speech, Can these days be repeated? Without stability and unity, nothing is possible. When troops were sent to impose martial law on the protests in Beijing, Xi Jinping's wife, Peng Liyuan, sang to them in Tiananmen Square. A photo of that performance is now heavily censored in China, like everything else about that dark period. Party leaders then set about restoring stability and unity, at all costs. And just two years later, they watched what could happen to a communist regime without that stability and unity. In Moscow, the hammer and sickle is lowered for the last time and an era comes to an end. Announcing his resignation live on television, Mr. Gorbachev said his country had earned democracy through the suffering of its entire history. His legacy guarantees him an honored place in history. Mikhail Gorbachev, the Soviet leader, was hailed as a hero in the West for his role in ending the Cold War. He had even visited Beijing during the Tiananmen protests, much to the protesters' delight. But Xi saw things very differently. Xi Jinping sees the Chinese Revolution as an outgrowth of the Russian Revolution. He knows that it was inspired by what happened in Russia. So for the revolutionary project that inspired the CCP, which he's dedicated his life to, for it to collapse and also create the instability and chaos that Xi Jinping so fears, based on his own experiences during the Cultural Revolution, he's naturally very curious about what happened. If there's one thing you remember from this podcast, let it be this. The Soviet Union's breakup, to this day, haunts the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP, including Xi Jinping personally. That was clearly on his mind just a few weeks after he took over as the country's leader, when he gave another speech. He describes the collapse of the Soviet Union as being the result of not enough ideological dedication, losing control over their own history, but also failure to use violence to resolve the crisis. The speech was given behind closed doors, but a text version distributed to party members was leaked not long after. It's now widely quoted by state media. Why must we stand firm on the party's leadership over the military, C said? Because that's the lesson from the collapse of the Soviet Union. He said it lacked the instruments to exert power as control faded away. And when Gorbachev allowed the breakup to happen, C said nobody was man enough to stand up and resist. In C's words, Joseph Turrigian hears a warning. Everybody, of course, knew that he was talking about China and he was saying that we need to rededicate ourselves to belief in the CCP. And if anyone challenges me, I will see that as a challenge of the party itself. The party almost never talks about what happened at Tiananmen in 1989, about the elite power struggles that nearly led to its demise. But the party uses the collapse of the USSR as a proxy for that tumultuous time in China. 
有一百五十多台摄像机在拍摄。我们路过的时候，他们纷纷向我们吐痰。A few months after the Man Enough speech, the party released a documentary about the fall of the Soviet Union. Party chiefs in every province summoned their staff to screenings. It too blames Mikhail Gorbachev and the Soviet leadership for losing faith in communism and the party's original mission. The film argues that decades before the collapse of communism in the Soviet Union, Joseph Stalin foresaw what would bring it down: corruption. Corruption undermined the sense that the socialist system was fair and just, and made the ideology sound hollow. That resonated in China too. Corruption was one of the reasons people had protested in 1989, as well as in the years leading up to Xi Jinping taking power. This is the first public speech Xi gave after being appointed general secretary. He said, "We must deal with party members who are corrupt and out of touch with ordinary people." Xi vowed to go after the tigers and the flies, meaning both high-level and low-level officials who were corrupt. He announced an eight-point code to guide their behaviour. It banned lavish gifts, luxury cars, and those banquets with hundred-thousand-dollar wine bills and fish more. And then the crackdown began. This is the title sequence of a primetime series from the state broadcaster CCTV, chronicling the campaign. It's called Ling Rongren. Zero tolerance. It features officials who've been jailed, atoning for their crimes. Previous leaders had tried to do something about systemic corruption, but Xi's campaign went far beyond anything ever seen before in China under Communist Party rule. One of the earliest cases to go to trial, just a few months after Xi Jinping took power, was that of Bo Xilai, the charismatic former leader of Chongqing and Xi's political rival. Bo was found guilty on all counts and sentenced to life in prison. Bo's public humiliation exposed infighting, scheming, and greed. It underscored the danger of a larger-than-life politician who could lead a rival faction and mobilize popular support. But the purge was only just beginning. You can tell how important the anti-corruption campaign was to Xi Jinping by who he picked to run it. Xi needed someone he could trust to take on powerful rivals. He turned to someone he'd known since he was a teenager. A man called Wang Qishan. Wang had handled China's response to both SARS in 2003 and the financial crisis in 2008. He was already known outside of China for his effectiveness and dry sense of humor. Wang Qishan and Xi Jinping went where no previous anti-corruption drive had gone before: the Politburo Standing Committee, the very top of the party. They upended an understanding among China's elite. Purge who you must among the rank and file, but stay away from the highest leaders. Zhou Yongkang was the recently retired head of China's courts and domestic security apparatus. He'd been a member of the Politburo Standing Committee, and in some ways, he wielded more power than Hu Jintao, China's famously weak leader at the time. 
Joel was also close to Borsi Lai. In spring 2015, he was formally charged with abuse of power, bribery, and leaking state secrets. He was found guilty at a secret trial, but video was released of his sentencing and confession. This was a political earthquake in China. Zhou was the most senior member of the party ever to be put on trial for corruption. If he could be taken down, then nobody was safe. The assets that authorities seized from Zhou Yongkang's family members and associates were worth more than $14 billion. Xi's anti-corruption campaign touched every big institution in China. He also charged numerous top generals with corruption. Then he replaced them with his people, ensuring that the military would be personally loyal too. Xi had spent his career in places racked by wheeling and dealing, from Fujian in the 90s, where party officials were entertained at the Red Mansion, to Shanghai in 2007, where he was sent to replace a corrupt party leader. He knew exactly how the system worked, and he wanted to dismantle it. His anti-corruption campaign, well, you know, partly political to get rid of uh, anybody could challenge him, but also it was, he was cleaning up a horrible mess. Jim McGregor is the old China hand who saw corruption evolve over 30 years. Before he came into office, um, it was a festival of corruption. Jim used to play golf with corporate clients in China. He'd notice government officials on the golf course too. Some rich businessman would be paying for all of it. And they'd come with suitcases of cash. And then there'd be 10 new members named Mr. Chun or Mr. Wong. You know, all fake names. Golf wasn't a game they were supposed to be playing. And there, you could tell an official on the golf course because they wore long sleeves and two gloves because they could not go back to their office with a tan. Uh, one hand tan, the other hand not tan. And most of these courses were illegal. And a lot of those courses had to close when Xi Jinping came in, actually. The crackdown proved to be hugely popular with the Chinese public. Xi Jinping turned the country around. He cleaned up a mess. There was no integrity. The party was very fragile. But I can tell you the um, Lao Baixing, you know, the average Chinese citizen, the worker, the peasant, he's made their lives better because they're not dealing with petty corruption anymore. More than four million people fell foul of Xi's anti-corruption campaign. It wasn't so popular with the country's rich and well-connected who'd done so well under the previous leadership. Look, you're, okay, you're a state-owned enterprise boss under Zhu Rongji or Zhang Ziming. You're playing golf. Uh, you're traveling the world. Your daughter's going to school at Cornell. You're making money on the side. For the elite, the good times were over. What are you doing today? You're worried about your past corruption. You're playing badminton. Your daughter's at Wuhan University. That has not brought a lot of love. Xi's anti-corruption campaign spread fear throughout the party. It kept people inside the lines. But they also need to know where those lines are. The Chinese Communist Party has a membership of nearly 100 million people. That means there are many more party members in China than people in Germany. How do you get them all on the same message? Your message. It turns out there's an app for that. More on that in a moment. I'm pausing the story for a brief moment to remind you that if you're not an Economist subscriber, you're missing out. I work with the best China correspondents in the business. Every week, they write about all kinds of fascinating China stories, 
often in very difficult circumstances. To read their coverage, and so much more, you'll need a subscription to The Economist. It's really easy to sign up. Visit economist.com slash chinapod for our best offer. The link is in the notes for this episode. Now, on with the story. Xi Jinping has codified his own version of Chinese communist doctrine. Xi Jinping thought on socialism with Chinese characteristics for a new era. It was written into the party's constitution in 2017. Mao Zedong is the only other communist leader who has his own thought in the constitution. The party introduced Xi Jinping thought in app form in 2019. The app's called Xue Xi Guo, which is a pun. Xue Xi means study, but it also sounds like learn from C. It became the most downloaded app on Apple devices in China. It has daily lessons, which are usually fill-in-the-blank exercises based on party policies and phrases Xi Jinping says in his speeches. Party officials must use the app daily. They get a score. It's a sort of ideological fitness tracker. Universities require it of their staff too, and companies with enough party members can compete with each other. Xi Jinping thought is mandatory in primary and middle schools. This is all about solidifying the party's dominance and unity, exactly what Gorbachev failed to do. But behind the scenes, another man is in charge of crafting Xi Jinping thought. Hey, brother, we're boots on the ground here. We're moving on to Capitol now. I'll give you a boots on the ground update here in a few. After the riot at the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021, a book by a Chinese scholar surged in popularity. It was published 30 years earlier, but it was prescient. It predicted that the divisions in American society over race, wealth and class would lead to its decline. The book is called America Against America, and the author is Wang Huning. He's now one of Xi Jinping's closest advisers, and he controls the party propaganda machine. But Wang keeps himself to himself. Wang Huning is a more uh, a timid uh, personality, and uh, he is more an introvert. Ming Xiao was a student at Fudan University when he met Wang Huning. In the 80s, Wang was a professor of political science, and the two men lived in the same building on campus. For Wang Huning, before 1989, it was not easy, sure and certain, and he could become what he is today. But after the crisis in 1989, Wang Huning laid his political cards on the table. One day, one of Wang Huning's graduate students got videotapes from a foreign reporter. The foreign reporter gave him a VHS about the June 4th Tiananmen crackdown. To watch the VHS tape, the students needed a video player, but VCRs were a rare luxury back then. So the graduate students knew Wang Huning and had VCR, so ask uh, teacher Wang, uh, I got this VHS, uh, can we watch at your home? Wang Huning, of course, was curious, was uh, interested in it. When Wang Huning and the students started watching the tape from Tiananmen, his reaction was instant and chilling. As so Wang Huning immediately turned serious and he said, do you believe that radio? Do you believe this is true? 
The party's disregard for the truth about what happened that day would push Mingxia to leave China for the United States a couple of years later, along with a wave of other liberals. But Wang Huning stayed. He caught the eye of the Chinese leader at the time, Jiang Zemin, and in 1995, he accepted a job in Beijing as his policy advisor. And amazingly, he's still there. He's continued advising at the top level for almost 30 years, under three different leaders. His political dexterity is phenomenal. It's as though the same guy had worked for Bill Clinton and then stayed on to advise George Bush, Barack Obama and Donald Trump. As is probably clear by now, Chinese politics is full of brutal rivalries between leaders. Yet Wang Huning has navigated it all. So he's a very loyal and committed servant to the emperor and also try to anticipate what the leaders want. How has Wang Huning influenced Xi Jinping? Xi Jinping is not a well-read person. And he does not know the classics, right, and the, the Western philosophies, political thoughts. And Wang Huning as a professor. And so he could always you see, offer something to help Xi Jinping to articulate and to clarify and what he wants, right? And also they can work together. Wang Huning's influence on Chinese politics is hard to overstate. During his time as an academic, he was a prolific author, and a lot of what he wrote has come to be Chinese policy. In his famous book, America Against America, he argued that the US was beset by crises because of its focus on individual freedoms, which is exactly what Xi Jinping wants to avoid. Xi Jinping has ambition. Xi Jinping had the experience that without power, you were nobody only with power, and you could not only change your life, the fate of your life, and also you could, you say, command other people. So I think both of them, they worship power, they understand how they can get power, and then to exercise power in a way to make them feel good. Exercising power is a two-step process, two steps embodied by the two Wangs. Wang Qishan Xi's anti-corruption enforcer until 2017 punished party members who strayed outside the lines. And Wang Huning, Xi's thinker-in-chief, tells party members where those lines are. His directives are broad. They have to be. You can't micromanage nearly 100 million people. So Wang Huning's brilliance is in communicating those big ideas in a few words. It's governance, by slogan. He's credited with party slogans you've probably heard of, like Belt and Road, and he's said to be the architect of Xi's signature Chinese Dream campaign. Xi Jinping first talked of the Chinese Dream right after becoming the country's leader, and the party propaganda machine went full throttle. Zhongguomeng is Chinese dream in Mandarin. Chinese celebrities filmed videos describing their own Chinese dream. These clips were shown across the country before movie screenings. The new slogan was an attempt to increase support for the party and promote patriotism, as defined by them. It's an umbrella for lots of Xi's policy slogans like common prosperity. That one refers to Xi's efforts to address the growing wealth gap. And throughout his anti-corruption campaign, he used the slogan, four dishes and a soup, 
to tell party officials what was acceptable fare at a banquet. We will make America wealthy again. We will make America The Chinese dream, again. common prosperity, Belt and Road, aren't so different from any good political slogan. Together, we will make America great again. The simple creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. They're not detailed roadmaps, but they gesture in a direction. The difference is in America. If you're a Republican but aren't into MAGA, you don't have to wear the hat. But in China, if you're a party member, you have to wear the hat. If you don't, you can expect a knock on the door in the middle of the night. With the help of key advisors, including Wang Huning and Wang Qishan, Xi Jinping has brought the party into line. But who keeps a check on the party? Who has the right to point the finger at corrupt officials? We're currently on the corner of Park Avenue and 70th Street in New York, and we're waiting for Zhuang Hong to pick us up. Oh, I think this is him. Let's go. Zhuang Hong is the activist from Wukang. Okay. The one who sent a letter to everyone in his village, signed Patriot Number no. 1. Lia Hong now drives an Uber in New York. I rode around the city with him when I was there, and we talked about what had happened in Wukhan. Local officials had sold off communal land without compensating the people who lived there. Lia Hong's protests had led to a remarkable concession. The government had agreed to let them hold an election for local leaders. They also fired several local party officials, charging them with corruption. But the villagers weren't done yet. To this day, we haven't resolved the issue of who the land belongs to in Wukhan. They're corrupt, so there's no way they'll return the money to the so-called businessmen, then return the land to us. No way. Lia Hong didn't feel safe there anymore. He'd already been detained once. So in 2013, I felt the situation was dire. If I didn't leave, not only would the government come after me, but there'd be nobody who could speak up for Wukhan. That year, I began to think, I have to escape. And so I chose to come to America, because... America is free. Lia Hong made it to the US as part of a tour group. He never left. But he kept an eye on what was happening in Wukhan. The new committee grew frustrated at the lack of progress and called for another mass demonstration. This time, it was handled very differently. It was 2016 and Xi Jinping's anti-corruption drive was in full swing. Local officials arrested the protest leader on charges of bribery. The anti-corruption effort had, it seemed being repurposed. That was political persecution. It was not about corruption. We were the ones who stood up for the village. We would never have thought of doing anything corrupt. Once again, villagers took to the streets. They protested for nearly three months until the authorities sent in riot police. Once Xi Jinping came to power, 
everything changed for the worse. Lia Hong's father was still living in Wuhan, and despite the risks, he wanted to protest. I phoned my father and asked him not to take part in the protest. But he ignored my advice and still joined them. They came in the middle of the night. My dad was dragged out in his pajamas by a gang of men, and beaten up as he was dragged away. He was thrown into a vehicle and taken at 3 a.m. That's the time when the Chinese Communist Party likes to arrest people. Lia Hong's father was released after three years, but six months later, he was diagnosed with lung cancer. He received treatment all of last year, until March, when he passed away. Just like that. I couldn't go back to attend his funeral. I could only do a video call to see my father's body. Why weren't you able to go back? Do you think I could have gone back? I asked my friend to set up an iPad so I could attend my father's funeral over video call. The police got involved too. They sent someone to our house and spoke to me over the video call and told me to stop doing what I was doing. They wouldn't let me watch my father's funeral by video. I was very angry at the time. So, do you think I could have gone back? Wukan is quiet today. Activists like Lia Hong have no place in Xi Jinping's China. The party polices itself. And under Xi Jinping, it increasingly polices everyone else too. Right down to what people think. That's next time. The Prince is produced by Claire Reed, Sam Colbert, Barclay Bram and me. Our sound designer is Wei Dong Lin, with original music by Darren Ng. Our executive producer is John Shields. We couldn't have made this without the help of some very brave people we can't name. For more of The Economist's China coverage, get the best offer on a subscription at economist.com slash chinapod.